Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Can you lose your salvation? If God saves someone, will they always persevere? What about people who leave the church? What about folks who, from all external perspectives, seems like they believe, they professed, they were baptized, and then they later walk away? These are important questions, and they are at the heart of this last discussion on Calvinism. Blake affirms that after regeneration, absolutely nothing can separate someone from God's saving love. Jacob, however, denies once saved, always saved, putting forward instead that The warning passages in the Bible make the most sense if someone can actually fall away. Here now is part six, the last installment of our Calvinism debate, episode 142, Perseverance of the Saints. We're going to talk about the P of Tulip, Perseverance, and... We have two very opposite positions on this subject, right, guys? Absolutely. All right. To so be determined. You, <laughs> okay. So even on the question of if you disagree, <laughs> there's disagreement. <laughs> All right, Blake. So uh, get us started. What is the P? What, is per, what, do, what does Calvinism mean by perseverance? Yeah. So when we come to perseverance, um, obviously this is the end of the acrostic. It's the, the last piece of the doctrines of grace. And one thing is this this doesn't stand in isolation. It's kind of a necessary piece to all of it. Like if you have election, you have efficacious grace. Logically, that implies that salvation is going to be certain for those because it's all about God saving by his power for his glory, those who he wills. In Philippians, Paul says, he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it to the end. That's Philippians 1.6. The promise of God is that he's going to start this thing in our souls and he intends to finish it. So in Reformed theology or Calvinism, the phrase regarding this perseverance of the saints is basically, if you have it, that is, if you have genuine faith and are in a state of saving grace, you will never lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. And we can talk about that in First uh, John. Those who went out, First John uh, two nineteen. those who went out from us were never really with us. And obviously, there are outward appearances of, of faith. They made an outward profession. But Jesus also says that people can do that and not really p- possess what they're professing to possess. In Matthew 15, 8, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does that warning about, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And he will send them away saying, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And I like this quote from uh, Ligonier.org. It says, he will not say, I knew you for a season and then you went sour and betrayed me. No, you were never a part of my invisible church. So that's kind of the intro to it, is that it's the conclusion of this concept. God saves us from, from his wrath, for himself, for his glory. He will draw us effectually to himself, and we will persevere, but we're not going to persevere because of our great ability to do so. It's because he's going to preserve his people. So I, I actually prefer the term preservation of the saints, but we'll just use no, I perseverance. Think that's, I think preservation sounds clearer to Good. me yeah. as far as what you what you just articulated there. Jacob, what's your point of view on this? So I think Blake would agree with me on this uh, in that we're not just talking about if you sin a few times, you might lose your salvation. You're in danger of that. But 
the question is, can a person apostatize from the faith? Can they be a believer and then for whatever reason uh, walk away or fall from the faith so that they're in a a state of non-salvation? And I would argue that uh, the Bible is very clear on this and it gives very clear warnings that when it's my time to share, I'll, I'll show. Okay. Blake, I'm curious to ask you about the system. This is another system question. Would you say, is it integral to Calvinism to believe in the perseverance? Or are there some Calvinists who are like Thule's without the P? <laughs> or, I mean, from what you've seen in the different communications you've had with Calvinists, like what are the options here? Is it, are all necessary? If one piece of, of the doctrines of grace comes out, you kind of lose the others. So like if you have people that are have a total moral inability to choose God apart from his grace, God unconditionally chooses some a, a limited number to atone and he irresistibly calls them. I think it just kind of logically follows that he's going to preserve them to the end because that's the whole that's true, point. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think, you know, the, I think we, as I was saying before we started recording, I think we're kind of through the really controversial ones and the ones that people really get heated over. And there's another concept that we can get into a little bit later, which is more of an Arminian attempt to maintain this idea of assurance of salvation of once saved, always saved or um, eternal security theology, which is basically like you make a profession of faith, you know, you believe in Christ and then, you know, you can never lose it no matter what you do. And I think that that, has far more difficulty than perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints from a Calvinistic view. Mm-hmm. Why is um, that? Because in the Arminian view, uh, your ultimate salvation is contingent upon your response and your cons- and your uh, sticking sticking through it. Where from the Calvinistic view, this is a monergistic or, or God working process, and He's going to work it out in you. That doesn't mean that there isn't fruit of that. I mean, I think obviously there's fruit. If you have if you have faith, you're going to have fruit. And if you don't have faith, you don't have fruit. So that's kind of a, you know, a quick check there. But I think preservation to me is far more biblical than eternal security, because I think while there are difficult texts, and I hope we get into some of those uh, today, for me, the overwhelming evidence is actually opposite of what you said. I think the overwhelming evidence is that God will preserve his chosen ones to the end. And that's not to say that there aren't people within the visible body who fall away or who apostatize or who were never really a part of uh, the believing. So that's my idea. You would probably agree with that, right? I agree that my salvation, your salvation, those who are in Christ, nothing can take that from me. Nothing can take that from the believer. Uh, Romans 8, John 10, 28 and 29, uh, nothing can snatch me out of Jesus' hand. Nothing can snatch me out of my Father's hand. Nothing, nothing, nothing can take my salvation, can take my assurance away from in Christ. But that is not to say that I myself cannot walk away. For whatever reason, I choose to walk away from the faith. And it, that seems to make sense of the warnings in the New Testament. That the, the, the New Testament is very clear that nothing can take our salvation, yet it still warns us that we need to remain in the faith. Because if we ourselves walk out or choose to leave, then we're losing that assurance. All right, Blake, so give us some verses and get us started here on a biblical case for preservation. I mean, we can look at the parable of the hundred sheep and the one that, that went away and that the even even that sheep of, of the shepherd sheep that goes away, uh, the good shepherd goes and gets the one and brings it back. And now we have a song about that. Which <laughs> just stirred much controversy among Reformed people. Uh, I think that that concept 
and obviously that's just one parable, but that idea is specifically talking about the sheep, you know, the people, the chosen people of God, and then, you know, one of them kind of wanders off. Won't he go get that one? Uh, he'll leave the 99 to go pick up the one and bring them back into the fold. And then, you know, there's John 10, which we already looked at extensively, but 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And obviously before that, Jesus juxtaposes the people that were there talking to him, asking him if he's Christ. And he said, you're not my sheep. And then he makes this statement that his sheep will follow him and they will give eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So I do have a question to your thought and you can answer this in your uh, discussion there, but no one's a universal negative. No one can snatch them out of their hand. It doesn't say no one except themselves can remove them. Uh, and the same thing in Romans 8. It doesn't say uh, nothing can separate us, this, that, and this, and that, and that, except if they walk away. And I think that that kind of qualifier missing from these universal negatives, uh, I would say puts the burden of proof onto your shoulders, not onto mine, to discern how we as who are someone are able to jettison ourselves from God's plan of salvation. And then I also wanted to point out Romans 5, 8 through 10. Again, a lot of this is stuff ground we've already covered, but because all of theology touches all the rest of theology. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one of the things I love about the Bible and about God is uh, all of his attributes are always interacting and always, and then that's reflected in in our study of God and his working is everything's always uh, beautifully interconnected far more than we can grasp. But in Romans 8, 5 through 10, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And then there's that thing in Romans 8 about what shall separate us from the love of God. And I already referenced 1 John 2.19 about those who left were not ever with us. I think that's a pretty strong statement that the people who apostatize were never part of the chosen of God to begin with. And then in uh, the last thing is Jude 1, 24, the, the end of the book of Jude, uh, or the end of this chapter, it says, uh, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. Um, so I think that's another powerful statement there about preservation, that he is able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless at the end. It doesn't mean there's not struggle. It doesn't mean that there's this and that. Um, there's also Ephesians. And then in Second uh, Timothy 4.18, which I'll wrap up here, uh, it says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And then he goes into doxology. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, so from my uh, grasp of it, I think that the burden of proof is on the uh, negative side for showing why there isn't preservation of God's chosen saints. Well, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Those who are in Christ will absolutely persevere, but it is only if you remain in Christ. If you choose to move away from Christ, then that assurance and preservation is not there, and that's what the Bible warns against. So the uh, classic, classic text to show the possibility of this in the warning against it is in Hebrews 6. Here we go. Hebrews 6, 4 uh, and following. 
For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation is useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, <clears throat> it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. In verse 4 and 5, uh, the author talks about a person who has been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God, which is the gospel, and the powers of the age to come. And then in verse 6, and then have fallen away, it is possible to renew them. Now, in verse 9, he says, uh, <laughs> falling, but concerning you, brothers and sisters, uh, surely this is not you. But the author... Good to have some confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the author seems to make a very clear point that it is possible for those who are in the faith to fall away. And there's a verse in Colossians 1. Starting in verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile of mind and engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And so Jesus is absolutely able to do that to us or, or do that for us. But in verse 23, if, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard verse 22, uh, we're able to be reconciled, we're able to be presented holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is only if we remain in Christ, in the sphere of Christ. And Hebrews 6 seems to indicate that there's a possibility of us falling away from that. And so, like, we are able to be preserved, but only in Christ. It's possible for us to fall away. Blake, would you like to respond? Oh, yeah. Been waiting for Hebrews 6 this whole series. Two things. One, I think the author's taking the most extreme position he can to emphasize the importance of obedience and faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, uh, this of things not seen. We also see that the fruit of faith, you know, we, we talk about the fruit of the spirit versus the fruit of the flesh. So part of it is like proving your salvation, like making your, your calling and election sure. Not that you're the one who's causing it to do that by your actions, but that your actions are an external evidence of the internal change. So in the case of these people who believed, who have been once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away. Again, this comes back to that distinction between the visible and the invisible church. There are people visibly in the church who attend Sunday service, who have been baptized, who participate in communion, who partake of that heavenly gift. The gifts of the spirit have benefited them. They've tasted the goodness, you know, they've, they've heard the word of God preached and the promises and they walk away. But again, I think it comes back to that thing in first John, which I, I am very curious to hear your response to that one, that if they fell away, they were never, they were never among us to begin with. So just to clarify, you're saying that the group in mind, the hypothetical group in Hebrews six is made up of the kind of people who have been exposed to Christianity, have shared in the Holy Spirit in the sense that they were like around others who were regenerated and who heard 
the gospel message and they were enlightened and all this, but they, these are not, none of these are salvific. These are all sort of like by extension, not direct. And I would also add to that, I think that these are the people that are described when Jesus says, those who say, Lord, Lord, potentially, I mean, and, uh, and I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And also in the parable of the sower, there's only one out of the four types of ground that produces seed or that, 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 that actually grows up. The rest of them are excited. You know, some of them are excited about it for a moment and then it gets snatched away from them because they're not the good ground. Um, there's only one type of ground that actually produces fruit. So, uh, and, and lasts to me, those pe- this is just another description of those groups of people. I guess I'll touch on first John, then I'll go back to Hebrew six. Yeah. So definitely there's, I agree with you, Blake, there's, there are some people in the church who are not really of the church. Uh, and so when people fall away from the faith, certainly that's part of the reason why it's because they really never were. But to say that that is every single person, I think is unwarranted. That's a bit of a stretch. What it's do you mean no- every single person? You mean everyone who walks away or who yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. So it seems like every person who walks away from the faith, the Calvinist says, well, they were never really saved to begin with. I think that's true for some. But to say that that is true of all, I think is that unwarranted. Well, I think it has to be true of all, right? I mean, in order for preservation to be a doctrine, people have to experience preservation. Right. Well, yeah, okay. okay. So, well, I mean, like, there there are people who believe for a short time and then fall away. But there's, I mean, just look them up on the internet. There are stories all the time of people who have been in ministry, pastor, they've been uh, in ministry. Well, even just go back to your first example there. H- how would you roll with that? Because you don't believe that their faith is possible without regeneration first. Doesn't mean they can't make a profession of faith and have emotional experiences and have a intellectual assent to the knowledge. I mean, we see this, we see people rejecting the faith after being Christians for however many years because of some, and I don't mean to trivialize that. I don't, I don't want to trivialize the loss of souls because I think that that is a tragic thing. But I do mean to emphasize that the people, you know, you see the martyrs who are persevering through torment and death and the, and the death of loved ones, you know, the, the torture and the death of others and watching their fellow believers get executed. And then they, you know, it comes to them and says, will you renounce Christ? No. But then you have people who are maybe exposed to the suffering in the world or exposed to somebody. They have their own personal tragedy. And again, I don't mean to demean those things, but then they go away because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you see someone like Job who, despite this, you know, his wife says, just curse God and die. And he says, you know, no, that's like the last thing I can hold on to. And he does struggle. I'm not saying Job doesn't struggle at the end. And it takes a big sovereign act of God to come down and show his power before Job and reveal to Job who this God is. Um, and, then, and and he never answers this question. No, he interrogates him. <laughs> and I think that that, whenever I struggle, whenever I, which we all struggle, we all have doubt, we all have crises of faith. But when that happens, I turn back into the word and I turn back to these. I look at David, I look at Job. I look at Moses, I look at Abraham. I mean, Abraham being told to sacrifice Isaac, the, the child of promise. I can't imagine, you know, the Bible is very brief in describing the next morning he got up, but I can't imagine right. the anguish that he must have experienced in the midst of that and the turmoil of coming to grips with this command that God had given him. So, so that to say, if you're walking away from the faith, you didn't have it because how, how could you walk away from the one who bought you from your from your... Uh, state of depravity from your sin, from your 
vileness and saved you from wrath that you rightfully deserved because of your own actions. So how do you, how do you classify, going back to the question I asked, mm-hmm. how do you classify or how would you label that apparent faith mm-hmm. that someone displays, you know, maybe they... Thorny ground, stony ground. I mean, I think... But it's not, it's not, re, that person is not regenerated. Right. And I don't think that people who uh, hear the gospel and have this great burst of, of excitement for it and then fall away, I don't think they are regenerate because I think if you're regenerate, you'll be preserved because we're sealed by the Spirit. So to right. me, it's, it's... So someone saying they have faith doesn't mean that they actually have faith. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And even doing signs and wonders and miracles, as we see with Jesus' statement about, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name and that, you know, we, we did miracles, we cast out demons. Even that's not an evidence. Or like the Pharisees who knew the law but didn't, but missed the Messiah. So I think all, all of those things are, they're useful, but they aren't the determinant factors of whether you're, you're saved or not. Before I forget what I'm going to say, uh, I want to I respond to Hebrews 6. So, like, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the people described in verse 4, or the person or people described in verse 4 and 5, are people who are on the fringe. They've seen the gospel, they've, they've, they've heard it, they've maybe been around Christians. I think they've probably been, I mean, he talks about, like, they've partaken of the heavenly, I, I think they've probably been baptized and taken communion and been involved in, in the sacraments of the church, and they've been involved. I don't think this is just describing people that, uh, hear the gospel on the street. It may be, but I, don't, I think it's more uh, specific than that. And the warning is, but ultimately, like they're not saved. Like, like they're not. So then, wh- why does it say in verse six, and then have fallen away? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, as if they had already been there and, and to begin with. But then they fall away. Like if they were never there to begin with, then there's nothing to renew them to. That's a fair question, and I. You know, I think this text is probably the most difficult text for uh, Calvinists to address. So I'm not going to claim that in, you know, 15 minutes or whatever we have uh, left, I'm going to be able to answer all the mysteries of, of the, the writing in Hebrews. But I do think if these people were truly regenerate, they wouldn't be in this category. Like, like we see in First John, we see in John chapter 10, you're not my sheep. Like, I think they're, and I keep coming back to the rest of what I see in Scripture, this is one section. It's a difficult section. I don't mean to, to diminish that or uh, to brush it off. But I think in the broader context, what we're dealing with is people that are participating in church that are apparently, they have an external view of salvation. They seem saved and they've probably made repentant. You know, they probably said, oh, I repented my sins and this and that and this whole thing. But because they're not, because they're one of these other grounds, they're not the good ground that is preserved to the end. So, I mean, that's a, that's kind of a simple answer to it, but that's... Okay, that's fine, yeah. I'd like to move to uh, Romans 11, if I could. I mean, Hebrews 6 is really important, but if, if um, a belief is based off only one passage in Scripture, then, right. uh, you know, you, you don't want to stick there. You want to see how uh, the whole of Scripture speaks to it. And I, I think the, the whole Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, individual people, passages speak about falling away from the faith. Romans 11 has something to say with that. In Romans 11... 17, uh, Paul says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, speaking to Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, uh, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And he says, quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. 
But you stand by your faith, do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And so we have this picture of this olive tree that represents God's people. And there are these branches that are not of the tree, uh, the Gentiles being grafted in. And so Gentiles and those who believe in faith are grafted into God's elect people. And he says, there's no reason to be arrogant because if he broke off the natural branches, certainly he will do that to do that to you if you continue in the faith, otherwise you will be cut off. And so, well, in Hebrews, maybe you could speculate, well, maybe they were on the fringe there. It seems like in Romans 11 that these people are actually attached to the tree, actually part of God's elect group, but only if they continue in the faith, otherwise they will be cut off. So they're attached and then they're actually cut off. So first of all, I think the big point of this passage to me um, in the flow of the book in particular is because he, he just finished up before this Romans 9, Romans 10, where he's t- and Romans 8, and nothing can separate us, yada, yada, yada. And then uh, it's not dependent on human will, but on God who has mercy uh, in Romans 9. And then we come into Romans 10 about the proclamation of the gospel. And now we're getting here this picture of the people of God, and then God is bringing Gentile nations in, and, and Gentile people into his chosen. It's not just national Israel anymore. And it's not because the Gentiles are so great. Yeah. It's his grace. And the warning is, I think it's the same warning that you see in Hebrews six. Like it's the same thing of staying faithful because those who stay faithful are the elect will be preserved. They are faithful because they're preserved is my grasp of it. Like they're, they're faithful because it's God who has mercy and this and that. That's not to say that there aren't people again who make, they're preserved because they continue in the faith. That's why there are all these if statements, like if you continue, if you continue, if you abide in me, what Jesus says in John 15. So it's like, we will persevere if we continue in the faith. If it was up to my own ability to persevere, I don't think anybody would, would be saved because I don't think we have the, 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 I think we lack the ability. I mean, we see this all through national Israel's history. They cannot keep the law. And then it comes to us and we're under Christ and we have a, you know, we're in a new covenant and we still fail. Every day we sin. Those if statements are there for a reason. I think they're there too because it's the proving of who is. But but we're not the agent of our own salvation and preservation. I mean, where is it about uh, the second Adam? Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. So here's a, here's a question for you off of that, you know, in terms of this preservation idea, in terms of God's preserving power. If in the first Adam, all die and all become a part of this curse. And as it talks about in Ephesians, uh, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're enemies of God. We're this, so because of Adam's, uh, it's the, the, I'm introducing a new concept late in the game, but it's that idea of federal headship, right? That Adam was our representative. And therefore, you know, it's not that we were physically there with Adam in the garden, yeah. but Adam guilty was... Guilty by association. Well, guilty because Adam represented us yeah. and he represented us perfectly. He didn't have an inclination to sin until he but he had the ability to sin and we obviously have the ability to sin but now we lack as we talked about in the first lecture i think that uh moral ability to choose god and so then it talks about the second adam and christ and how much greater and more superior christ is so if by the action of one man all men die how much more 
is the power of the second Adam or, or of Christ over those who are saved? How much stronger is his power uh, and his effect on people, you know, over and against the first Adam's sin? So I, to me, again, looking in the broad context, looking at that, I think, yes, we do, like, I'm not suggesting antinomianism where you sit back and you say, well, I'm saved by grace, so I'm just going to sit back because Paul warns against that. He says, don't sin more that grace may abound. May it never be. You're missing the point. Um, We're saved unto good works. We're saved uh, to glorify God. But I don't think that we are, in the final analysis, saved because of our ability to persevere. Because, again, I don't think anyone has the natural ability to persevere apart from the spirit of God and thereby, you know, within the, the framework of the rest of the system, because it's God who justifies God, who glorifies, um, and God who saves, it's also God who preserves. I guess I want to clarify myself. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I don't, I don't think I can persevere because of my own ability to do so because every day I'm shown that I'm terrible <laughs> and that I sin and that I make mistakes. The reason I can persevere, the reason I have assurance of faith is because I attach myself to the vine because I've been saved and being in Christ, being in the sphere of Christ, not being in the sphere of Adam, I am able to persevere and have assurance of faith. Honestly, I cannot think of any situation in life that would cause me to walk away from the faith or that would cause me to be separated from my Lord. But it happens to a lot of people and not just people who believe for a little bit in the beginning and then fall away. But there, like I was reading a story the other day where there was this pastor who'd been in the ministry for a long time. And in his blog post, he said he's an atheist now. Certainly there are some people who never believed in the first place. But for whatever reason, people can choose to walk away. And, and I don't think it happens overnight either. The reason why somebody slowly drifts away is because they they detach themselves from Jesus. They detach themselves from God, and it's a slow fade. It's not something that happens immediately, but it's a process. So, Blake, do you think perseverance is the responsibility of God, or is it the responsibility of man? I think God preserves, and therefore we persevere. Like, our ability to persevere is contingent upon God's preservation of his people. Okay, so if if it's totally on God, if it's 100% on God, then certainly nobody will will be able to fall away. But it's really hard to make sense of the conditional statements if it's absolutely God. Like, if if it's 100% God, which I absolutely believe, like, God helps me persevere. God gives me the strength to persevere. But if it is 100% up to him... Which is what monergism is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then why is Paul talking to me about continuing in the faith? Why is Hebrews warning me about continuing in the faith if it's yeah. all God? Yeah. So this is the difference between monergism and synergism. Synergism is working together. Monergism is working alone. In the Calvinist system, God works alone to save and then presumably to keep saved. Uh, whereas the... Um, Armenian position is that uh, there is a, a partnering for the process of salvation and then a partnering for the continuance of salvation. Now, both positions recognize the role of the Holy Spirit to enable perseverance. The Calvinist position is saying that that role of the Holy Spirit guarantees it, whereas the Armenian position is it makes it possible, but it doesn't make it definite. It depends on your 
continued decision to to remain in the to faith. Remain yeah. in the faith. Now, Blake, I would like to ask you about the psychology of salvation, because this was John Wesley's big issue. And as many of the listeners know, John Wesley was one of the biggest promoters and popularizers of Arminianism and uh, the Methodists today as well. And what John Wesley saw in England in his time, 1700s, was a lot of people saying, well, I'm elect, so... I don't have to. I don't have to live righteously. Yeah. Like God chose me. I don't have a choice. Like I'm. I'm already saved. So I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want, and I'm not worried about it. He's going to continue to to keep me saved, no matter what I do. And then there were other people that he ran into that said, "Hey, I'm reprobate. He he has not chosen me, and so why should I try?" And Ironically, both sides of the equation lived in sin as a result of, and I'm not saying all people were doing this, I'm just saying this was his experience with conversations, as, as a result of their beliefs, both led to sin rather than to a, pur- a pursuit of righteousness. So how does this work out practically from a Calvinist position? I mean, uh, do you know if you are the elect, and if you do know, then... Where's the uh, impetus? Where's the motivation for doing the hard things in life that God wants us to do? I think that's a good, a very important question, and I'll try to break it down as best as I can, and then to the to the limit of my understanding. Um, I think, for one, n- no one at the table is uh, advocating for legalism, like the you, you know you're saved by the letter of the law, and no one's advocating for antinomianism, like the people you're describing who uh, Wesley ran into, which is anti-law, or the people that would say, well. I'm elect, so therefore I don't have to do anything. Um, and if you note it, like I, you know, I can cite a couple contemporary uh, Calvinistic preachers, like John Piper or uh, Paul Washer, who were some of the most adamant and fiery gospel preachers uh, of our day, and very zealous for this point of of holiness and and obedience, because it's through that that you prove your election. I mean, you can sit there and say I'm elect all day. Uh, I can say I'm a tree all day. That doesn't make it true. You know what I mean? And, and we see this in our culture, uh, you know, this whole idea of my truth or your truth or this relativism. And I think that when we, when we get into that, we get into very dangerous territory because then we have people saying, well, I'm saved and they're not living like regenerate people vis-a-vis. They're not regenerate people. I think that that's a valid concern, but I think that people who are living that way are crassly misunderstanding what they're claiming to believe uh, and, and showing an ignorance of it because if they're saying, well, I'm... I'm saved so I can do whatever I want. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach, I think, I, I think that the doctrines of grace are in Scripture, not read into it, but read out from it. Um, but be, in light of that, now that we've been given this heart, if we have a heart change, it doesn't mean we're not going to sin, but it means that our desire is now towards God. And it should grieve us when we sin, and it should grieve us when we do this, and we should repent, and we should come back. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sin. Like, there's, there's a daily assumption that there's going to be sin in our lives from Jesus' own words about how we're supposed to pray. And so I don't think God is shocked or surprised when even his elect who he's regenerating and he's sanctifying are falling in sin and are struggling. And, and even some people, I think, for a period of time, they, they, they don't come to church, they go away, but then he goes and grabs the, the one that's wandered off. So uh, again, approaching holistically here, uh, in human experience, Let's just talk about you personally. Yeah, do sure. you do you know that you're elect? 
I mean, I would like, I, I think so based upon the, what I see in scripture, based upon what I see about the fruit of the spirit, based upon what I see about faith to the best of my understanding. And also again, like I talked about uh, earlier where I have that, I have a, a very acute grasp of my own, probably not by no means full, but my own sinfulness and my own inability to save myself and my reliance upon Christ because it's his work that saves me, not my own. And that has an impact and that causes me to grieve when I sin and to repent. And I, I mean, I've heard this explained a, a bunch of different ways. And so I think would that, you say you have assurance? Yeah, I would say so. But I would also qualify that uh, like a good theologian and say, if I tomorrow go off and renounce Christ and get involved in whatever pet sin you want to attribute, I think that that would make an evidence of a false confession. I don't like Jacob. I don't think that's very likely because I've seen the fruit and I've also been through different levels of struggle and suffering. But you know if your confession is false or not because you're you. Right. Or is it self possible for self-deception? I think in the, I mean, I think Jesus does indicate that it's possible for self-deception. I'm saying for you. I think, yeah, I think so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, if it's possible for anyone to say, Lord, Lord. um, But again, I think that's where these if statements come in because they prove the faith Mm -hmm. and the prove the regeneration is through these if statements. But it's not as though those actions in and of themselves are, are, are uh, what's preserving me. It's it's one. It's absolutely God's work that's changing, regenerating, sanctifying, okay. preserving. But the proof of that, the evidence of that, is my own life and the the transformation therein. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, uh, let me come back. Let me come to Jacob and ask you a question about your belief, which is that sometimes people will say, "Well, if salvation is not assured, if it's not guaranteed." then you've got two things. The, the first is psychological, where the, you have the issue with anxiety. And you're not sure if you're going to remain faithful, and you're always concerned about that, and you're, you're, it, it becomes like a fear-driven situation mentally, where it's like, oh, I have to continually prove my salvation. I mean, I guess that could apply to either side of the fence here, but I think more so for the conditional perseverance side. And then the other aspect that traditionally is lampooned against those who hold to conditional salvation is the the charge of workspace salvation, that you believe that it's, yeah, God saved you, plus you have to work. So how how do you deal with those two issues, the anxiety issue and then the works salvation accusation? Yeah, the the psychological issue, not being really sure if you're saved or not. If somebody's asking that question to themselves. They should find a pastor, find a friend who is knowledgeable in the Bible, <clears throat> find somebody who, who, who knows and understands the Bible, and go through the New Testament and look at uh, the evidence uh, of the believer. Uh, are they uh, not just one time, but continually practicing repentance? Are they forgiving? Are they <clears throat> hating the things that God hates? Uh, are they loving the things that he loves? Are they? Uh, is the fruit of the spirit evident in their life? Are they persevering? Have they had a heart change? Do they really believe the gospel? Do they really believe what Jesus has done? Do they believe the story of God and what he has done through Christ? So 
I think a way to disarm that question is to see what the Bible has to say about the believer and what is the evidence of a believer. And also also acknowledging that even when we are in Christ currently, uh, we still sin, we still mess up. Uh, but First John 1, 9, uh, he is faithful uh, uh, and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our iniquity. So, so you uh, would say it's more of a pastoral concern where you would try to build somebody's confidence yeah, yeah. Um, or or get, get them to self-evaluate and then build their confidence if it is appropriate. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now, yeah. what about the works salvation charge, which is bandied about all the time on the Christian radio and, and on websites? How do you respond to that? Do you believe you can earn your salvation? No, absolutely. And if your no. perseverance depends in any measure on you, how is that not you earning it? Well, okay, so no, I don't think I can earn my salvation. I can't, I can't do enough works to, to be saved. The reason why I say it's synergistic, um, again, it goes back to uh, the conditional statements that Jesus makes in the gospel, that Paul makes in his epistles, uh, that I must continue in the faith. Now, it's not solely upon me. It's not me alone in my own ability, but God has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and he has brought me to that place but am i going to choose to stay there now probably for many people the answer is yes and they will abide and they will persevere uh, because they want to abide in christ uh, and god but for a few people for whatever reason and actually you know i want to be specific here because i thought what would like like like, like you asked, Blake, what would, what would ever make a person walk away from the faith? If they've really been regenerated, if they've really had a heart change, if they've really experienced God, why in the world would they ever leave? And I've thought about this before because I can think about myself and that's not something, I can't think of anything that would make me do that. And I'm sure you two would say the same thing. So say, say you uh, grow up in church your whole life. You're a Bible believer. You're, you're, you're a disciple of Jesus. Uh, you graduate high school, uh, you go to college, and you get really challenged with with your faith. And uh, a lot of different options uh, are brought up that you haven't thought about before. You're really challenged in how you think. And unfortunately, you think that that evidence is more convincing than what the Bible teaches, than the evidence for God and Jesus. And you renounce your faith. There could be that. Back to your point, Sean, uh, no, I don't think it's solely works. It's more like a response that I'm, that I'm uh, giving to God, um, that, that, that I will persevere with his help uh, and his assistance because I can't do it on my own. All right, yeah. so that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Blake, you want to just uh, give us a final concluding statement for uh, P here as well as for the entire series? And First, Jacob. First, I want to thank both you guys for this riveting and uh, challenging discussion. I think it's very profitable um, for us as Christians. And, and my hope is that uh, people listening will then you know, be able to take from this even more opportunities to dive into Scripture and, and grasp what you believe and wrestle with these, because these are important topics. And as I said in an earlier podcast, though, the, ironically, the theology of salvation, soteriology, 
is not a salvation condition. Um, it, thank, thank in and you. of itself. Right. Huh. It, it's not whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist that saves you, thank God. We don't have to have perfect theology to be saved. And I think in this perseverance aspect, again, I come back to what I've seen in John 6, as we've visited many times, or Romans uh, 5 and Romans 8, or in Ephesians, that he predestined us for adoption to himself, and that in you the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him, and we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's Ephesians uh, 1, 13 through 14. And also this statement in Jude about he's able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless. This thing in First Second uh, Timothy, uh, he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Here's another Sproul quote, but I really like it because it's con- he is that really good teacher, has a very good concise statement. He says, my confidence in my preservation is not in my ability to persevere, My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with his grace and by the power of his intercession. He is going to bring us safely into his kingdom. Now, Blake, if if you were going to recommend to somebody one resource, whether a website, a book, or whatever, for somebody who's interested in learning more about Calvinism, what would you you say? The one that got me, like, really, you know, to, to address a lot of my issues and to think about it in a way it's just a primer it's in no way a uh, full-blown exposition but I think it's a really good starting point and you'll hear a lot of my points have been drawn out from uh, this book but chosen by God by R.C. Sproul um, I think especially the audiobook version it's extremely gracious he's very patient you know th- for me that really broke a lot of the preconceptions I had about Calvinism and Calvinists and thinking they were these cold calculating uh, as one of my friends would call it, armchair theologians, where they just sit back and there's no uh, compassion or practical uh, view. So I, I highly recommend that, as that was, uh, it's very digestible too, and I think accessible if you're, whether you're into big theological terms or not, because he breaks it down and explains as he goes. And then uh, Jacob, thank you for your participation. What um, What are your final thoughts as far as this whole series has gone and um, any resources to recommend? Yeah. So I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's really uh, opened up a aspect of theology that I wasn't uh, really keen on, to be honest, and I'm still figuring it out, honestly. So I've really appreciated the conversation, Blake and the moderation, Sean concerning perseverance. I think the Bible uh, does teach that it's possible to fall away from the faith and uh, Blake, he's, he's been throwing quotes at me this whole series and I haven't had one until now. And I was listening to a William Lane Craig video and he uh, read this from, I don't know if it was a paper or in a blog post, but uh, it's just by this man named Thomas Schreiner. He's a New Testament scholar and he's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he says, if I were not convinced of unconditional election, I would surely be an Arminian. The warning passages are so strong that I can understand why many believers think they can lose their salvation. And so this isn't a minority position. Uh, the Calvinists in the Armenian camp are both really big, and there's a lot of great thinkers and theologians on each side, and uh, we're not going to get it worked out here in this series, but uh, it's something to definitely consider uh, delving into. And just, you know, just because it's not a salvation issue does not mean there's truth to be had, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't strive after it. Concerning resources, if someone wants to learn more about this from the Arminian perspective, uh, like I said, I'm just kind of delving into this aspect, uh, field of theology, but uh, I know William Lane Craig, he's an Arminian, 
Dr. Michael Brown is an Arminian and a website to go to that's good is uh, the Society of e- uh, Evangelical Arminians.com. There's a lot of good resources and information on there if you want to learn more about the Arminian perspective. Thanks so much for this. And I'm so glad that we were able to model a, a constructive disagreement, which is, is uh, so rare in our, in our time where people are getting more polarized and less willing to uh, practice any kind of civility. So uh, I really appreciate you guys and your tone. Hopefully the listeners can uh, find the truth between uh, everything that was said here. So thanks. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Thanks to you who have listened to this all the way through. For those of you who are not into debates, I uh, thank you for bearing with me on this, bit bearing with us on this. Next up, next week, I've got a really great interview with somebody who's been in the abortion fight for decades, and he shares his insights into that subject, so stay tuned for that. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to vote on today's episode, just look for 142, Calvinism versus Arminianism, number six, Perseverance of the Saints on restitutio.org, and either drop a comment or vote for what position you think is more biblical and more coherent. Thanks, everyone, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.